Howdy folks, Ryan here. We got a doozy of an episode for you this time with um, Mary Moriarty, who is uh, running for the county attorney position in in Hennepin County, which is the county uh, containing Minneapolis. Before we get to that interview, I just need to note briefly, as usual, that this podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect. And so if you subscribe on Patreon at the $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the website and uh, the opportunity to get a, a discounted print subscription if you so wish. We're very grateful for our partners at the Prospect. Good stuff over there. Make sure to check them out. Um, so without further ado, let's get into our interview with Mary Moriarty. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we have a very special guest, Miss um, Mary Moriarty. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, just like Sherlock Holmes. Oh, good. Alexi told me not to bring up any Sherlock Holmes jokes, <laughs> but, uh, but I, self-deprecation, I, self-deprecation is always welcome. Yes, <laughs> um, but but Mary is a uh, a, a the former uh, chief public defender uh, in Miss Minneapolis. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I was the chief public defender in Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis and its suburbs. Right, uh, and I was in that position for six years. And now you're running for the uh, county attorney of of Hennepin County. I am right. Okay, so um, a lot of things to 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 ask you about. You know, Minneapolis has sort of been ground zero for a lot of things over the the last two years. Um, but one thing that that I think maybe people uh, haven't been hearing so much about uh, is that the public defenders may be going on strike or have been threatening to go on strike. And this, uh, you could tell us about this, but I first just want to note, note that, uh, you know, we're seeing what may be a kind of uh, the the long predicted and of, of many false dawns resurgence of the labor movement. Uh, just today, Starbucks, the Starbucks union won three more elections. That's 13 out of 14 for them. Uh, the other day we had a successful unionization vote uh, in, at a warehouse, an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, totally unprecedented. This is a, a, a like a brand new union, no institutional support whatsoever. The guy running it was was kind of a, a wild and crazy dude, broke all the rules and won by a huge margin. Um, so that, you know, nobody thought they could win. Um, 8,000 workers, I believe, something like yeah. that, right? And so that that is that is big. Um, be, you know, those are those are businesses that can't just pick up and go anywhere they want. You know, if you're in the retail business and delivery business, you got to be where the people are. So anyways, can you start off by telling us a little bit about this uh, this public defender sort of, you know, potential strike protest order? What are the what are the grievances and what are they asking for? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you you were talking about the. Um, unionization and the what's going on across the country. Um, and, and people probably don't know this, but our Minneapolis teachers and support uh, education support professionals did go on strike. Um, they were out for two or three weeks. They just settled uh, relatively recently. Our public defenders did vote to go on strike. Uh, they were able to settle uh, 
many of them were not happy with the contract. Um, but one thing that has gone very well thus far is that the predicament of public defenders has come to the attention of the legislature. And right now, the legislature, uh, well, at least part of the legislature is talking about um, giving the public defender system a substantial amount of money to try to address some of the issues. So one of the biggest issues has to do with salary parity. Um, in So it, it's a little complicated in that when I, I was a public defender for 31 years and mm-hmm. for the first part of my career, I was a county employee and all the public defenders were county employees. And we were actually in the same union as the prosecutors in Hennepin County, um, which is a little bit of an unusual arrangement. But what it meant was that what resources they got, we got same salary structure and that sort of thing. And then when the state board took over the public defender system in Minnesota, Um, It it was good for much of Minnesota because the individual counties were left to fund the public defender systems and many counties weren't um, really providing adequate representation. Hennepin County, however, was. Um, And so what happened when the state took over is that the county employees were grandfathered in as I was. Um, And then every new employee that came in after that was a state employee who started at a salary that was less than the county attorneys. And because the pay scale or the steps were 10 versus 18 at the time, um, very soon county attorneys working across the aisle from public defenders were making you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars more, um, and so that caused many, many morale issues. And of course, people coming out of law school these days have huge, huge student debt, um, and you know, people don't go into public defense for the money, um, and they're you know trying to buy a house, have a family, you know, live their lives, and yet they're making far less money. Uh, so that was a big issue. It still is a big issue. Also, caseloads. Um, we were uh, the the caseloads were way way up. Um, you know, some people had over a hundred felonies. And I know if if I said that in some areas of the country, they would say, "Well, that's not too bad," <laughs> because others of the country are worse. Um, and that's true. I know from from doing a lot of training with Gideon's Promise uh, all over the country, but. Um, it was big here. And so caseloads, um, salary parity, and kind of just general appreciation and treatment um, of staff and employees by the Board of Public Defense. What What is a, a, a hundred felonies? What does that refer to? A hundred per year or? No, a hundred at any like given person, time. Right? Well, yes. Um, so the people who were uh, in the person felony division only did person felonies. So that would be robberies, assaults, sexual assaults, murders. And some of them had a hundred cases at one time. Uh, And that's just not sustainable. What you do, Mary, you just cut your day into a hundred segments. You just have a, I don't know, do the math on that for me, you know? (laughs) Right. And, you know, the way things are set up here, uh, they usually have trials on Mondays. So it's not unusual for public defenders and frankly, prosecutors to have uh, six, seven, eight trials set on one day. Um, And it's just impossible to prepare uh, and it's a disservice to clients. Yeah, except for one day. And you don't entirely know which one is going to go. 
Oh, um, good. That's helpful. It's fun. Yeah, surprise. And, yeah, I, surprise. <laughs> and they're different judges, too. And so you're running around between judges and you don't know which pair of a public defender and a prosecutor are going to be first in line. And it's just a big mess, actually. Mary, it, has the legal system confused justice with a reality TV show? Because it sounds <laughs> like we're trying to do like, let's let's let them guess what it's going to be today, folks. And and, uh, you know, talk about a case of the Mondays. But this this these troubles you're describing are um, this is an interesting case where the workers here and their working conditions are not just affecting them affecting themselves and their families, but literally the, the justice or injustice done to their to the people they're serving and meant to, to defend. Right. Yes. Uh, and I know that very well. Uh, my last year as chief public defender was 2020. Um, and so I. uh <laughs> At the time, I remember the court system closed down for uh, a couple of months for trials, Um, but they were trying to keep up. uh, They were trying to, at one point, open up the courtrooms and start to do out of custody misdemeanors. That means people charged with really low level crimes who were not in custody. And one of the issues was they were not requiring screening. This was before vaccinations. They were not requiring screening. And of course, people, well, I should say, people don't get appointed a public defender until they appear in court. And so these poor people were being summoned into court. And if they didn't show up, they were afraid they'd get a warrant. So they would come in and they would be sick. Um, And the public defender staff was the only, you know, they were the only people there actually interacting with them because everybody else was behind plexiglass um, and the the meeting rooms were tiny. They, they were just not OK, even though they put plexiglass in some of them. And it was just uh, it, it was it was very frustrating for me because it seemed to be a um, value statement that the court valued processing people um, through uh, who could be sick get sick when they came in um, and also make our staff sick um, unknowingly. And so that was extremely frustrating. It was frustrating to see uh, that the value seemed to be. And remember, these are out of custody misdemeanors. So we're talking about trespass, shoplifting, really low level offenses. And to me, there was no need to have people start coming in in person. and so it was very frustrating and, and the court system. Yeah. And the court system right now. And one of the reasons that people have so many cases stacked up is that they did get way behind uh, in COVID uh, and they're trying to catch up. But um, one might look at the cases that they have uh, and see whether those are properly charged. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of issues there that we could go into. Yeah. Um and can you tell us, you know, you said you were there until 2020. Uh, what happened? I was there through 2020. Yeah. So um, I was uh, so part of I, my job when I became chief public defender, I understood very well that there were structural problems in the public defender system, not just in the public defender, in the in the criminal legal system. And as chief public defender, one of the things I wanted to do is to try to address some of those problems. 
I was also very well aware that there are many people who are going to law school to be public defenders. And while they want to go uh, to offices to represent one client at a time, they also want to feel as though they're part of something bigger, you know, an office that's addressing systemic issues. Mm -hmm. And so I was attempting to do that. I was also very outspoken about salary parity, um, which which angered some of the people um, in at the Board of Public Defense or the State Public Defender's Office. Um, and, you know, to give you an example, too, I was accused of not um, getting along with my justice partners. Um, and what they meant by that were prosecutors and judges. And here's one example. Um, that situation I told you about where they were planning on opening the courts, uh, the suburban courts actually for out of custody misdemeanors, uh, the largest newspaper here did an article about it. And I was quoted as saying that they didn't have a proper safety plan for our staff, for our clients. Um, and then I was summoned to a meeting with the state public defender and the head of public safety in the county where I was told by the head of public safety in the county that I was to consider myself part of the Hennepin family and that I was not to be speaking publicly about issues like that. And then I was told by the state public defender that he had heard complaints about my comments in the newspaper and that I had to be concerned about hurting justice partner feelings. Um, yeah, I, it, was, it was incredible. And I was also accused of calling a justice partner a racist. Um, and that situation happened when there was a bail forum, uh, an all day forum. And I was sitting in the audience and there was a panel that actually had the state public defender on it um, and a prosecutor, a county attorney on it. And that prosecutor kept referring to uh, people on, and this was bail, right? So it's pretrial, pre-resolution, presumed innocent, that kind of thing, was referring to people in that position as thugs over and over and over to the point where, and there was a, a very large audience, people stopped, they were looking around at each other, like, you know, who is this guy? What's, you know, is somebody gonna say something about this? And, and I happened to be sitting at a table with a couple of friends of mine, um, two black women, and one of them looked across the table at me and said, um, you got your people. And I was, um, you know, at the time I had certainly gotten myself to the point where I understood that as a white woman in particular, if I remain silent and I don't say something in a situation like that, I am complicit in that. Um, and so when she said that to me, I, mean, I was already going to say something anyway, but I also realized, yeah, you know, I, I do have to say something. And I asked for the microphone and I tried to think of uh, the kindest way I could say this. Um, and so I said, I am asking you to reconsider your use of the word thug because it's racially charged. And he just flew off the handle and started screaming into his microphone. He was just out of control to the point where the person who uh, organized this whole thing had to grab a microphone and run up to the stage and tell him to take a deep breath and control himself. 
And then there was a break and I was out in the hallway talking to somebody and the same prosecutor came up behind me. He was much taller than I was. He was inches from my face and he was screaming at me saying, you didn't have to do me like that. And I said, well, I did have to say something. And then he was screaming and pointing his finger in my face saying, then we're never going to work together again. And I was really shaken up. And two people from the foundation where this was happening had to physically push him away from me. Um, there were never any consequences to him. And I was accused of calling a justice partner a racist in public. Um, what a, uh, one, just a brief uh, sidebar, as our friend Harvey would say, what is a justice partner? Yeah. You know, sometimes people refer to people in the system as stakeholders, uh, justice part. It would be the the people like who, who are in the system, like the, judges. The Hennepin family? <laughs> yes, the Hennepin family. Um, prosecutors, judges, probation officers, all of those people. You know, and as a term, you know, stakeholder, whatever. But but I am as as chief public defender, I certainly was not a member, did not consider myself a member of the Hennepin family um, is as much as I considered that I represented the people in Hennepin County. Right. And yeah. it was my obligation to be talking about things that the prosecutor was doing, which uh, were hurting our clients. And, you know, one of those things was he had made a, an announcement that um, he was at a meeting, actually, that I was at, that he was no longer prosecuting marijuana charges. And so I came back to the office and I sent an email out to everybody saying, hey, great news. Um, County attorney's office is no longer charging marijuana cases. And then I got emails from people saying, well, this is my client who's charged with a marijuana case. <laughs> What's going on? And so I contacted the county attorney and I said, I did I did I hear you correctly? I, I, I thought this is what I heard. And he came back and said, well, that's an exception. That's an exception. And some of the exceptions were prior marijuana cases. And so it, it just so there was a policy, but it had so many exceptions. Um, it, it was yeah. This, so yeah, this, <laughs> so please, I did. No. So I did talk about that in the newspaper as well. And he was livid about it. Um, but to to go back to your question and what happened, um, I was not reappointed as chief public defender. Um, and this was despite the fact that the National Center for State Courts, which is out there in D.C. and Virginia, which is an independent entity. It had done a multi-year study on our office, interviewing justice partners and uh, clients and looking at data and interviewing staff. And in 2019, they found us to be one of the most effective public defenders offices in the country. So, you know, and, you know, I had the support of our two unions and our staff um, by and large, and the community called in and I just didn't get reappointed. And I could have stayed as a county public defender, line public defender, but I didn't want to do that. Um, and I ultimately was going to sue them, but we settled for $300,000. Um, it certainly would have been an interesting lawsuit, I say, as a lawyer. Um, but I also, uh, because the lawsuit would have been about the State Board of Public Defense um, retaliating against me for speaking out about race um, and salary parity and that kind of thing. But I also understood as a human being, the whole going through this whole thing was very traumatic. And I really 
needed to move on with my life in some way. Um, and I didn't need to be in litigation with a case like that, which would have been very complex and uh, taken several years. And so I had to think about, okay, you know, what do I want to do now? Yeah, no, it's, it strikes me just a, a few, a few things come to mind immediately. Uh, you were policed and punished yourself and, uh, for being a public servant, actually, because, you know, in, in, in classical political theory, you know, the, the, uh, the distinction between, um, corrupt governments, regimes that are corrupt and those that are healthy, uh, was the difference between, um, a rule by one few or many that's oriented towards the the common good or towards the 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 good of those in charge and it seems like because you were not part of the 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 you know Hennepin family where you were looking out for the good of those in charge and those in power uh you were punished because you looked out for the public good instead and and that i think says says a whole lot and maybe is a microcosm of the problem with policing itself in many places in this country um because of the thin blue line and all that. Uh, so, so that just kind of, that struck me as, as emblematic of the thing you're fighting, right? You know, I think it's a good point. And it, it actually, there was a judge who wrote a letter to the board advocating that I be uh, reappointed, um, saying also that he had been, he was one of the longest serving judges on the bench. And so he had seen all of the chief public defenders um, and did describe me as the best public defender they had had and, and did urge the board to consider the fact that they had to make room for dissent, um, that that was a strength of leadership, that there would be differences of opinion. Um, and, and yes, you're, you're right to look at it um, in terms of police, but I look at it even broader than that, because a lesson that it really taught me was when you are trying to change things and you're going against the establishment, even people who would describe themselves as Democrats or, you know, progressive or moderate or what have you, um, you try to push against them um, and they do come after you um, and they are powerful. And so in a broader sense, too, and this is something I'm always interested in what people perceive about Minneapolis, um, but I can tell you, having lived here, I was born in Minnesota. I've lived in Minneapolis since uh, college many, many years ago, that we tend to think of racism is something that happened in Louisiana or Mississippi, where I've spent a lot of time with Gideon's Promise, and I, I understand I drive around in Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia, and I can see Confederate flags. Um, but in many respects, uh, um, the racism here is more insidious because it's kind of undercover <laughs> much of the time. And we want to think of ourselves as very progressive and people can get really, really defensive if you talk about race and try to push back. And when you combine that with the fact that, and, and many people probably don't know this, Minnesota is actually, actually has among the worst racial disparities on every metric um, in the country. And, and that's on uh, home ownership, it's on health, it's on income, it's on in the criminal system. In fact, I hear people here say Minnesota has among the lowest rate of incarcerated people in the country. 
But the second part of that that they don't say is within those people who are incarcerated, we have among the highest racial disparities in the country. And so we have two Minneapolis's. Um, we really do. We have, you'll see us on the top five list of places to whatever for white people. And then you look at the racial disparities and we're down at the bottom. And that is something that we haven't reconciled. And honestly, I thought with George Floyd's murder, it was the best time um, in my 31 year career that I could see um, more people in the Twin Cities saying, oh, we do have a problem here. Um, and, and so Minneapolis has been ground zero for a lot of different things, um, but we are really struggling in some ways that I think are unique to some places um, because we have a really hard time acknowledging structural racism uh, and doing the things that we really need to do that would correct that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was um <clears throat> I want to return to to uh Minneapolis specifically. Um but I I think it's worth zooming out a little bit uh because you know, it's easy to forget that the 2020 protests against, you know, like like demonstrating against police brutality, you know, in memory of George Floyd were probably the largest mass protests in American history in raw numbers. I don't know, adjusted for population or whatever, but um, it was a huge protest. I mean, this was in like little towns, you know, across the country had people marching because it was such a horrifying thing. It really, you know, it culminated the years of organizing and pointing out that we had this problem, police shooting people, um, and mass incarceration and, uh, you know, it had been fixed and somebody needed to do something. And since that time, there has been, I think, a wholesale retreat from uh, Black Lives Matter, from uh, police reform, really of any kind uh, in like the National Democratic Party. It's now we need more funding for police. Police weren't defunded anywhere, hardly. There were like a couple of small, small budget cuts, largely because of the, the pandemic uh, crushed some budgets in a few places. But most places, um, cops got more money, and now they're going to get even more money, you know, if Biden has anything to do with it. And there is, you know, there are things making strides in certain places, uh, Philadelphia, we have a reformist district attorney, you know, who is a subject of a police union funded primary campaign that's just spectacularly flopped. He just crushed that guy, Krasner. We love him, uh, you know, as far as district attorneys go, at least. Um, and, uh, you know, he crushed in the general election, too. It wasn't even close. It was like a 40 point blowout. Um, but however, in San Francisco, there's a recall attempt against the uh, progressive kind of reformist district, district attorney, um, you know, who, you know, really, just like Krasner is really not all that, you know, he, he's not like a communist and he like he'll charge murders, you know, the police. Not that there's anything wrong with that, Coops. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. I'm just saying, like, if, you, if you're in the spectrum of like police reform, he's not a get rid of the police. He's like, oh, the police should follow the rules of evidence and let's not charge marijuana <laughs> cases and stuff. And, the, and everyone in San Francisco apparently is like, ah, to hell with you. Scourge the unbeliever. Um, so in that context, in the, in the context of like the police in, in continuing to be f 
alter uh, equal parts fairly racist and terrible at their jobs the the murder clearance rate in philadelphia is like 40 percent um you know i i don't think it's that much better in like los angeles uh and in and uh in many cities it seems like the police are kind of just doing this on purpose like we're not going like if you dare to question us we're not going to do our jobs anymore or even try to do our jobs pretend like we're doing our jobs so what is the situation like in Minneapolis? It seems like there's kind of been a, a, a microcosm of this whole sort of back and forth over the past two years. Is that right? Uh, yes. And it, so I think you have to understand a little bit of the history here, too, that um, there had been activists protesting uh, people who died in police custody, um, Jamar Clark, many uh, other people. So there had been active protests for years um, that really hadn't been heard and that nothing seemed to have changed. And so when what happened to George Floyd happened and it's during a pandemic and everybody's home pretty much and it's on video, um, I remember thinking right away, this is going to be our Ferguson um, and it did blow up in ways that none of us expected because there were a lot of people um, we were aware of, like white supremacists coming into town. Um, and it was really scary being here, actually. Um, I mean, not to be part of a protest. I mean, I was out the, the day that the third precinct uh, was set on fire. I was actually out in front of the third precinct um, with some friends handing out or from the health department, handing out masks to people, um, making sure that everybody had a mask because they were there protesting and were handing out masks. And in the Target uh, parking lot across the street, um, a car blew up. Um, somebody must have set it on fire. And I think the battery blew up and we were all kind of like, OK, we're out of here. Something's changed. Um, and then so many of us sat at home uh watching this um and and many people were out trying to protect their property um their businesses especially in north minneapolis um where and most of the stuff was not happening there but they felt abandoned by the police and it was really scary to be here um there were a lot of things that happened to peaceful protesters um, you're probably quite aware of all the lawsuits about people who lost their eyes. Um, they got shot by in the face by non-lethals. I think uh, they just settled one of those recently for $2.4 million. And so we have been living with video of all the interactions with police and civilians throughout George Floyd. And then um, it's actually just come out in this last maybe six months that there was a man named Jaleel Stallings, who was a mili black military veteran, had a permit to carry. And this was four days after George Floyd. And he had heard, like many of us had, that there were white supremacists in unmarked vans assaulting people. And so he gets shot in the chest um, by a marking round and he thinks he's been shot in the chest by an actual round by people in an unmarked van. And so he grabs his gun and he's actually shooting at, at the ground um, when he realizes it's actually the Minneapolis Police Department in an unmarked van. He throws his gun to the side. He gives himself up. He's lying on the ground. And you can see surveillance video, which must have been from a building or something of the cop coming across the parking lot and kicking him in the face. 
And then we have body cam of him being beaten for 30 seconds and they fractured his eye socket. He ended up being charged with attempted murder of the police. And that trial just happened within the past year. And uh, he was acquitted. And then the video, the lawyer tried to make all the video public and the county attorney's office opposed that, but it did become public. And so once again, everybody sees all this video from what happened um, right after George Floyd. So this is a situation that completely traumatized communities here. And then in the trial, we had Dante Wright shot and killed in Brooklyn Center by a police officer during the Chauvin trial. And the Chauvin trial and the other officers has been going on for months. There have been protests. Um, we had the Kim Potter trial. She was the officer who shot Dante Wright. Um, and it's it seems as though every time people can catch their breath here, um, something else happens. Um, and the most recent thing is Amir Locke. Um, being shot uh, during a no-knock, the execution of a no-knock warrant, which many of us thought was banned. Um, and there's been major confusion about that. And just yesterday, there was a decision made not to uh, charge in that case. So as we're speaking right now, I know there's a protest going on over that decision. And so people are just traumatized after trying. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty awful here for many people. And you're, the pendulum you're talking about, I feel um, quite a bit as a candidate, somebody who's running for county attorney, because last fall, when I would call people, they would be asking me about the charter amendment. As you may know, there were a couple of charter amendments on the ballot last fall, and one of them was to create a Department of Public Safety, and it was very controversial. Um, and, and part of the language was including a police department, police if necessary kind of thing. And that was hugely controversial. And so when I was talking to voters last fall, people were saying, well, I didn't vote for the amendment, but I do think we need police reform, but I just don't know what it looks like. So I was heartened by the fact that I'm talking to people in the suburbs, you know, all over Hennepin County, and people are still understanding there's a need for reform. Um, and this hasn't gotten away. But then we had this uptick in carjackings, like every city pretty much. And they were in areas that people thought of as being safe. Um, more white, wealthier neighborhoods. Um, and so they were happening where people were not used to crime happening. You know, even though we had a situation earlier this summer, last summer, where we had three black children shot in the head, um, there's always been violence in certain parts of our community that really hasn't been addressed. But when these carjackings started happening in some of the suburbs and that kind of thing, that took over the coverage. And I think the police have made a concerted effort to push back um, like they have in other cities uh, and, and to try to talk about um, prosecutors being the problem here. Um, you mentioned some statistics, which were interesting. So here uh, we're told that Minneapolis apprehends 10% of people who commit carjackings. Countywide, it's 24%. 
And so when I talk to people, and I do talk to a lot of people now who say, how are you going to keep me safe from carjacking? I will say, well, you know, first of all, we can't hold anybody accountable if we have 90% of the people or 76% of people not being apprehended. So I'm, I'm curious as to what tools the police need to be able to apprehend these people. And one of the things that police have been saying is that it's about bail policies, bail reform. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to you, too. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, we really haven't had bail reform. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the county attorney a couple of years ago sent out a list of 19 cases and said that he was no longer going to ask for bail on those. But they were 19 property offenses that no judge would ever set bail on anyway. One of them was lottery fraud. Um, you know, one of them was car theft, not carjacking, car robbery. There was not a single violent offense on there. Yet the narrative that seems to be kind of carrying the day with some people is it's bail reform that is allowing these violent criminals out to repeat. And so, so that is not true. But it's in the media and it's in the voters' heads. And so when I talk to people, I say, it's not that. But here's what we do need to do. So there are 10% or 24% of people who are apprehended. Let's take a look at the data on those people and let's see what's happening to them. And are they actually going out and reoffending or not? If they are, we need to do something different. So let's actually look at the data. Um, and, and that's been an uphill battle. I think against the, you know, the, yeah, the, the um, <laughs> carjacking. And I understand that, you know, my mom lives about a mile away from here and mm -hmm. she called me and she was, she said, I'm afraid of being carjacked. I mean, nobody should be carjacked. That is not yeah. okay, but we can't forget we've had violent crime going on in some of our neighborhoods for decades and we have to address that. Well, yeah, because the, the, the key, I think, you tell me what you, what you think, Mary, is that um, police do not do anything about these preventing these things from happening. Uh, th they are the wrong solution to the problem, which is to say that what are the conditions that create the need to carjack? Right. The people you said there's data on them about reoffending. What's the data on their lives in terms of what leads them to do this kind of thing? And how about we put resources towards that? Because actually, if somebody doesn't need to do a carjacking because they're being taken care of and the state is helping support them, that's a violence free solution instead of initiating and, an, you know, more funds to go to the police who themselves do violence to, to the public. Right. So it's, it seems like just the whole way of thinking of it is, uh, and, it, and it just reminds me of what you described for the, the protests, you know, white people concerned largely with their property rights, uh, lead to the state doing violence to people, uh, who don't happen to own property even. <laughs> and, and there's a conflation of fighting crime, uh, with, um, are we actually addressing the harms and the conditions that give rise to them? Right. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important point. As a public defender, one thing I do bring to this conversation is having represented people for many, many decades. I, I tried cases for over 20 years, and I know the histories of the clients I had, and unfortunately, many of them were young Black men, and so I know the trauma that they had in their history. And I know had we intervened at some earlier point, they may not have been there. They were the victims at one time. Um, and I know I, I see this from prosecutors too often where they kind of see this binary. There is someone they think of as a perpetrator and someone they think of as a victim. And it's not that way. 
it's not that way at all. You know, somebody who's harmed may be tomorrow's person who harms somebody else. It's all about trauma that people bring in and is it being addressed? And frankly, the system is terrible at even recognizing trauma and, you know, identifying it and having programs, especially to help youth with trauma. Youth are, you know, living through this pandemic, living through, um, in some of our communities, poverty, um, gun violence, uh, generational trauma, and what are we doing to help them? Um, we also know from adolescent brain development, youth are very susceptible to peer pressure and, um, you know, they want, they take risks and, and we know they'll age out of it too, but I, I question what we're doing and I have thoughts about what I would do, you know, with youth, um, because what we do is we send them to prison sometimes, an adult prison is really not going to be helpful there. Um, or they just cycle in and out of the system without really getting the help that they need. Um, you, the other thing you mentioned was interesting. I think I know of one study that said that um, having extra police can reduce crime or I think it was murders by, you know, they had, if you have this many more police, you might be able to reduce the murders by one, that kind of thing. And so there was that one study um, but one thing I've also read commented about that study is that with police, um, they also bring the problems that they have with the community with them, um, especially in communities of color. And so ultimately you're weighing, okay, you know, more police might prevent crime to a certain level, but by bringing more police in, are we actually creating more problems in the community um, overall? So, and, and I think generally people would agree that police spend time reacting to crime that's already occurred. And, you know, we should all want a, a system or a society where we're preventing crime um, and we're keeping the conditions that create somebody to be in the situation of committing a crime rather than apprehending them after the fact um, and then simply focusing on punishment as opposed to meaningful accountability. Yeah. I mean, it does. It strikes me as like kind of crazy that the police can get so much narrative like juice out of out of what's happening. You know, you have a situation where in most cities over the last year and last two years, like police budgets have been either flat or increased quite a bit. Uh, crime has gone up. They have not done anything about it. Clearly they have not managed to prevent it. And yet somehow that's justification for them getting more money to do the thing that they're already not fixing. It's like sort of there. I don't know. I guess maybe sort of tapping into a kind of lizard brain reaction <laughs> where it's like, like I've been the victim of crime, you know, like somebody try to break into my crummy uh, Toyota pickup truck that I used to own and broke into it three times. You know, I ended up in the police impound one time. That's a very, you know, emotional experience. You're like, ah, you feel you get so pissed off, you know, like, ah, I need to, like, I wish I could find these people and like, you know, unproductive sort of reactions. But I feel like, you know, it's like they're, they're tapping into this, like, oh, we just need to, we need to punish the perpetrators and, <laughs> and not sort of thinking in a, in a rigorous way about like, how do we actually make the crime not happen instead of just like lashing out, you know, in a, in a completely instinctual fashion. So like, do you have thoughts on, 
um, you know, s- sort of convincing the public, the the like the the your your voters, uh, potential voters, that like this ju- just, I mean, at a very bare minimum, giving more money to the police who already aren't solving most of the crimes that people are concerned about isn't the answer to like preventing the crimes. Um, it's that is a really complex question here. It's one that I've thought a lot about. And one issue that I think has been overlooked here is that um, when the charter amendment was voted down in Minneapolis, there were a substantial number of black voters who voted it down. And I think a piece of this that we miss is that we like I, I live in Minneapolis. I live in a I, I don't worry about crime. Now. I drive around. I mean, I just I have some situational awareness. I just don't worry about it that much. I live in a neighborhood that is we don't have that much crime. And what I think happened with and you may remember this um, at some point in our city council was talking about and the words got, I think, conflated. There, there was defund. There were all kinds of words, that kind of thing. And I think one thing that didn't happen was an acknowledgement that there are many in our black community that are hiding in their bathtubs because shots are being fired at their houses. That, like I said, we had three black children shot in the head. Um, There is a lot of violence um, in North Minneapolis in particular. And so you can't say, you know what? We're just going to get rid of police without having any other option because you've course, got yeah. people, right? You've got people um, who are saying, help us. They're saying, we don't like the way police treat us, but we need police. We're getting, you know, people are getting shot. Our youth are getting shot. We need help. And and I don't think that was addressed um, as well as it should have been. And, and it comes to this, if you, th- and I think about this, like I think about, when people ask me about defunding police, I say, you know, I don't even know exactly how people are using that term anymore. And so I think it's better to talk about, let's look at what police do on a granular level. We know here, I think they 6% of the time they respond to violent crime or something like that. So if you talk to police, you know that they are tasked with doing a lot of things that they just don't want to do. They're not trained to do, but we have no social safety net. And it's just, you know, everybody calls 911, just put it on your lap, that kind of thing. And if you really go through and ask them what they do, they'll tell you, you know, they get calls from neighbors over leave disputes and dogs barking and stuff like that. We do not need a licensed peace officer responding to that or to fender benders or to, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and that's that's another issue, too, that that I studied yeah. a lot as chief public defender. But there are all kinds of things. And, and now Minneapolis has rolled out um, a behavioral health crisis team, a mobile team. And there there are these programs prop, cop, or, you know, popping up around the country. And it yeah. is a social worker response to mental health, which is far better. And so what I see happening is you you can't just say you know, get rid of police. <laughs> well, you, we don't have. I might, but yeah. <laughs> you might, yeah. But, but, you know, but to, not people, just that, though. Yeah. to people who are being over-policed and under-protected is, is a huge problem. That's here. Right. Yeah. They're being targeted right and left. They're not being treated well, but 
they are in the midst of a lot of violent crime. And so what is it that we're doing? We have to put our money where our mouth is and fund those programs, those right. alternate programs so that people have yeah. other options. We have to fund um, places for youth to go, community yes. centers that got right. shut down. Public all, goods, yeah. Yeah, all of that. And until people can see those actually funded and believe it, because I know that people have been asking for these things for a long time and they just haven't seen right. it. You can't, you know, that that is why there's a lot of mistrust here. So, Mary, let me ask you about this, because this is really important. I think this is super important, um, because I think a lot of discussion is about the the, the slogans, whether it's uh, defund or, or divest and divert or, or abolish or whatever. But, but really, the politics of what's going on, it seems to me, is that, well, when the police get funding, that means there's funding taken away from these other public services and things, right? And when people, if they understand what's going on, if they ask for defund the police, what they're saying is we need to fund these other social services for people, right? And, and, and so something's lost in translation, maybe, but like there's a zero sum budget, as you know. And, and, and one solution, which is the, the, you know, the police solution takes away all these other possible solutions. I, I'm so glad you brought up the social worker solution that, that's been, um, I just read, I, I don't know if either of you saw this recently, I forget where it's taking place, but there were documented 2,200 social worker calls that were used instead of calling the police, and not one had to escalate to call the police to come in as backup. Not Denver. one. It was Denver, Denver, I think. Okay. Yeah. Denver stars, yeah. But yeah, of there, course, psychologically, if you don't lead with what you're giving people to, to solve the harm, to address the harms, and you just say... As bad as things are, it's going to get worse because we're taking away the only thing that we have to offer as it is. Then, then of course, the psychology is going to be within the black community. Oh, you're going to give us less help, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but I think whether the slogan is the problem or not, the political solution that we need to communicate, I think, is, is police funding means you don't get funding for these other things. I, I think there's just such a huge mistrust right now. Um, you can talk because there's been a lot of talk about, yes, we want to fund this, but has it actually been funded? Um, and it makes me think about James Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own. Um, you know, James Foreman used to be a public defender. He wrote this great book, won a Pulitzer Prize. And what's fascinating about it is he talks about the politics in D.C. and how it is that um, there was a white council member who was proposing legalizing marijuana. It was, it was something like that. And then the black council members were against that, um, or it had to do with some low level drugs. But in the last analysis, the black members of the community wanted both, right? They want social services. They wanted all of that stuff that they were promised. Um, what they got was policing um, only. They didn't get anything else. Those social services, those things that help that, that they were also asking for. And what's fascinating to me, and you mentioned traffic stops, was that um, the AG at the time in D.C. specifically said that they were doing traffic stops to target black men. There was no doubt about it. It was to target black men. And do you know who that was? Was it the guy that said they're thugs that you that you called out? Because <laughs> that maybe no, moved. no, the <laughs> shocking thing. No, it was Eric Holder. <laughs> oh wow! Shit. Yeah, 
Yeah. 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 And so, you know, you get <laughs> and so it was instructive in that, you know, how does Eric sure. Holder get to that place where he's advocating that they the police stop? just focus and stop and frisk black men. And and so the book is really excellent because it talks about how you get into these political sure. situations where the politicians don't come through with the yes. funding they claim they will. And so Which there is, is uh, you know, segments of the black community who are like, well, why will we trust you? We haven't seen it. We have not right. seen it. Now here there I are the it's not like the black community is a monolith and there are certainly many members of the black community who are all about abolish and defund and you know that sort of thing and so we have a real divide here there um we have some strange um <laughs> political alliances i think because of that um but it is a challenge um in a county because we're not just talking about minneapolis you know for me running for county attorney it's all of right, these right. suburbs too um it's some wealthier yeah. people in minneapolis that have more conservative opinions and i mean i'm going to tell you about one that just floored me the other day i was door knocking and it was um in a wealthier part of the city of minneapolis and it was a man who had raised his children in this particular house and he was talking about violence um and how he was going to sell his house and move out of minneapolis and this conversation went on for a while and at some point he said to me you know we all know what the problem is and people are just afraid to say it it's feral black youth wow yeah wow. And, and this was a person who identified as a strong democrat hmm. and a delegate to the county convention and that's upsetting how did you react that's that's quite a, a difficult thing to encounter isn't it it is. And I was of two minds. I, I think I was shocked at the time. And I just ended it very quickly by saying, thank you for sharing something like that. But as I walked away, and as I continued to think about it, I, my authentic self would be, you know, I'm not your candidate. Mm -hmm. you, you really <laughs> ought to go vote for somebody else. Um, right, right. Because that's, <laughs> yeah. But, Mary, take his vote anyway. Take his vote. Get elected. Do the good things. Yeah. Instrumental, I, instrumentalize yeah. the racists, I say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a problem. That That is a problem, obviously. Of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, you don't always see it that um, out there. Right. That explicit. Yeah. It reminds you of, of your Alabama uh, trip, right? Of the Confederate flag out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Usually it's more, more pernicious um, yeah, up north. And, and I, I will say in some of these conversations or the things that we're hearing about carjacking, which, as we know, are not unique to Minneapolis, that's happening in other places, too. Yeah. I am hearing um, uh, words that are reminiscent to super predator. Sure. That yeah, makes sense. It makes we're a lot back, of sense. We're back. And, and, and I think you mentioned this before, that some Democrats are kind of jumping on that bandwagon again. Not not that. I mean, Super Predator came from the Clinton era um, right. and it yeah. was the. Yeah. So that's disturbing that, you know, as Democrats, we are not seizing the narrative here and saying, you know what, we are the party that's going to keep you safe, because clearly what has been happening when you just focus on punishment for as long as possible does not work. We have all kinds of data on that. It's really expensive. 
And there are a lot of things that we can be doing that are based in data and research that will work. Um, and we're not doing that as much as I would wish we would do it. We're reacting to Republican fear mongering on, you know, carjackings Everything. and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, so we don't miss it, you know, in in that context of, you know, solutions, tell us about the county attorney, you know, so this is like the other side of the, the fence, so to speak. Now you would be, you know, the kind of uh, ball busting prosecutor, right? The <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I've, it's like a legitimate uh, worry, I would say that that you know, the, the sort of the, the form may influence the person, but you know, if, if you're a, a longstanding public defender and you want to be the county attorney, what, what does the county attorney do and how do you want to sort of change it to like achieve the objectives you've been talking about? Yeah. So the county attorney is the most powerful entity in the system because without even having to consult with other people, and I'm not saying this is a good idea, they decide who to charge, who not to charge, whether to ask for bail, whether to offer somebody diversion, what to offer them. I mean, in effect, um, they uh, are, are responsible for a person's entire trajectory into the system. And I think about one particular case that's very meaningful to me because I've gotten to know this this young man who was, when he was a teenager, indicted on a first-degree felony murder. A felony murder isn't something that they have everywhere. We've got a felony murder task force to try to reform the law we have here. But essentially, he was, uh, I think it was a drug deal gone bad or something. And the person he was with had a gun. He did not. And the person he was with killed someone. He did not. But he got indicted for felony first degree murder, which would have been life without parole as a teenager. Um, so it was the county attorney that made that choice to charge him with that. Uh, he ended up pleading guilty to felony second degree to murder, murder and going to prison for 22 years. And I, yeah, and I and he's come out. He's been out for about three years, I think, and he's doing great things. And I've gotten to know him. And I think. You know what? I mean, even the best public defender really could not have. I mean, felony murder is really tough. Um, and so as a public defender, there really isn't a lot you could do to impact that situation. But as county attorney, I could decide we're not going to charge people, especially teenagers, with felony murder when they had really nothing. They didn't have the weapon. They didn't cause the death. And so somebody like that young man would never have gone to prison. You know, you could deal with that's the, huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yes. And so that's how I think about it. I think about racial disparities. Remember, I told you all those decision points. I don't I haven't seen any data on this. I don't even know if they keep data on this, but because they are subjective decision points, I'm sure there are racial disparities there because we all have bias. And so what I would do is look at racial and gender disparities and put in place policies to eliminate those. I want to treat youth from a trauma-based perspective, understanding how their brains work. Um, we need restorative justice. Um, we need to expand that greatly. I'm a huge fan of a program uh, called Common Justice in New York. Uh, a woman by the name of Danielle Sered created this fantastic 
restorative practices uh, program for violent offenses, except for sexual assaults and domestics. And what's fabulous about it, it's a long program. It's not a couple of circles or something like that. It's like over a year and it's optional for, and she uses the language harmed person and responsible person. And the, the recidivism rate is 7%. Amazing. And when you're talking, yeah. you're talking about ages 16 to 26 and you're talking about assaults and robberies. Um, and, and so why is it 7%? It's 7% because every harmed person who comes into the system, well, half of them don't because they don't want to have anything to do with the system. But if you ask them what they want, they say, I want to make sure this never happens to anyone again. And so the stuff that we do often ensures that it does happen again. But they also have all these questions, which I have heard over and over and over sitting through sentencing hearings. And the questions are always, why did you do this? Did you target me? What were you thinking? That kind of thing. And the traditional system is set up to make sure that they never get those answers because your client, you know, if you're defending a client, even if they want to answer them, are not allowed to. Um, and so a person who's harmed never gets that information that might set them down the path of healing. And then the person who's committed the harm can be punished and sent to prison. But, you know, as um, you know, I actually take a step back. The young man I told you about on the who went to prison for 22 years, his cousin was killed this summer um, or this fall. Uh, a woman was shot and killed, and he knew the guy who shot her. He had spent time in prison with him. And he was telling me, I've been thinking about this. And he said, prison isn't enough. And I was thinking, oh, are you, I was, I was wondering if I was going to hear death penalty or something like that. Right, right. And yeah. he said, because I remember him in prison, he was a loud mouth. He would talk. He would never take accountability for what he did to my cousin. He could just do his prison time. He needs to go to restorative justice, which really surprised yeah. me. But, yeah. but that's the harsh sentence. <laughs> yeah. But the reason he yeah, was saying right. that, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Danielle Sered says this is, Sometimes people drop out of the program because it's much easier to do the prison time than it sure, is of course, to be accountable. face yeah. what you have done to another person. And That's one right. example, which I, you know, when I tell people and I think about this is something that I could do um, that's not being done now here. Uh, she was telling a story about a young man who was robbed, the man who robbed him. And Interestingly, the mother of the young guy who was robbed was asked, you know, do you want to go to restorative practices? And her answer was not what I expected. It was, if I had a machete, I would chop him into little pieces for what he did to my son. So she was not wanting to, you know, yeah. impact the trauma of this kid. She, but what she said was, my son is so afraid he cannot walk to the bus stop or the train stop. He has to take Uber. He's so afraid. If, we, if he's ever going to be able to move through this, I think we need to do this. So the guy who harmed him eventually said, you know what? I know self-defense techniques. Can I teach him how to defend himself? <laughs> Just imagine wow. this. I mean, wow, can you yeah. ever imagine this? Human but, complexity, yeah. Yeah, they worked it out. They, they went to a professional martial arts studio. 
um, had lessons. And then at some point, the guy who robbed him started holding him lightly and he could get away. And then they did it over and over until the guy was holding him as tightly as he possibly could. And he got away. And then the next morning, Danielle Sered gets this phone call from the, the young guy who was robbed. And he she hears the words, nothing happened. And she's like, what? And he said, I walked to the bus stop and nothing happened. And then he said, because this was in New York, I'm at Times Square. I'm not afraid. I want to be around people. And, you you know, I just hear that. And I think here's a young guy that he might have been scarred by this his entire life. And always afraid to be in the public. And, you know, this helped him down that healing path. And the guy that robbed him had to address the trauma and had to face what he had done to this young guy. And what she says is apologize and do the apology. That is why the recidivism rate is 7%. Now, if we think about options for that, why wouldn't we do that? Right. Instead of, and it's it's not for every case, but why is that not an option for people? Absolutely. That's beautiful. I mean, the only reason not to is if uh, our system isn't really about uh, redressing harms and preventing harms and healing people, which it doesn't seem to be about, right? It seems to be about more about punishment and social control. Like, that is incredible. I mean, it, you, what you're pointing out there is that the, the caging of people not only doesn't heal or help the, um, the person who's responsible for the harm, as, 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 as you say, but it doesn't really t- do much for, for the people harmed a- at all, really, uh, other than the bare minimum of saying this per, this this particular person won't be in your vicinity for a while, right? But other other than that, the trauma hap- that's happened to them and the possibility of new trauma, that we just don't we ignore all that. And why can't we deal with human complexity like you're suggesting, like like this story tells us, right? Yeah, and you know the other thing about it, I, I've been the victim of a violent crime, and so I can very easily put myself in the shoes of of the person who's been harmed, and just sending somebody to prison. Um, you know, somebody who's been the victim of a violent crime, one of the things you think about is, I wonder if that person's thinking about the impact on me. Because I'm sitting here thinking about the impact on me, and they could be in prison, you know, not thinking about right. the impact. Right, <laughs> so right, right. It's, it's, you know, this, I and I always, so this is a, one of my, I teach at the University of Minnesota Law School, and one of my students said to me, we were talking about restorative justice, well, what good is it if you just have to apologize? And I said, let me make it really simple for you. You steal a candy bar. Would you rather have your electronics taken away and be grounded or be marched down to the convenience store, pay for, give back the candy bar, listen to the impact and help around the convenience store? When I tell that story, actually, to other people, I always get people raising their hand and saying, I did that and my mom made me go and I never did it again. But <laughs> but the difference is if you are grounded and your electronics are taken away, yeah. I imagine you're in your room thinking about yourself and you're thinking yes. oh, they have 10,000 candy bars. It's one candy bar. What is the big deal? And why are my yep. parents so mean? You are not thinking about what you have done or the impact of what you have done. It's all Absolutely. about you. Um, and, and so if we can help people get to that point and the reason we don't, um, you can just imagine it's like I got I was door knocking the other day and somebody said to me, well, I've heard you're weak on crime. 
And, you know, it, it, like, what it, I'm not sure what that means exactly. Right, but right. I said, I said, I would like to think of myself as effective. You know, what does it mean to be tough on crime? Like punishment when we know it doesn't work. I mean, sometimes right. people do need to be incapacitated, but really punishment is punishment. It's we're just mad at somebody and we're going to send them to prison and punish them. It doesn't rehabilitate at least the way our prisons are, it doesn't deter. Some people think it's deterrent, but when you're talking about youth, nobody who's been around a teenager is thinking that they're thinking, hey, if I do this, then this, that's not how they think. So, you know, not, famously the most rational of creatures, teenagers, really, really forward thinking. Uh, right, yeah. right. And you right. don't catch them. You know, you're talking about the carjacking or 90 percent of the time you get away with it. You know, 40 percent murder clearance rate uh, in Philly. It's <clears throat> it doesn't well, uh, yeah. even have the feature that people <laughs> boast about it. So I, what ironically, do we do it? ironically, because I think you know, whether it's the Clintons or Biden or, or whomever, the neoliberal turn, right, is, you know, not just heavily responsible for mass incarceration, um, but for shifting structural problems and structural racism, racism uh, onto vulnerable poor communities and blaming individuals for their circumstances. But the irony is you're talking about real responsibility, real moral and individual responsibility. It's the leftist vision that actually cares about responsibility in relationships, right? Yes. Um, because if you're in relationship with someone, your view of them is much different. You, it, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's like what they did in the war on drugs. When you otherize someone, a whole group of people, which they did quite successfully, then it's not hard to send them, you know, those scary people that you're seeing in the media and popular culture to prison for for a long time in a place that's incredibly dehumanizing. And in the irony of it, too is we know that most people who go to prison get out, but we certainly don't treat them as though we want them to be able to reintegrate into the community successfully. Because if we did that, we wouldn't put them in orange jumpsuits and take away their names and assign them numbers and regiment everything they do and take away their humanity we don't do job skills. We don't do anything like that. And then they come out of prison with convictions. And how are you going to get a job? How are you going to get housing? Um, we just put up so many barriers for people. And we wonder why we have such a high rate of people going back to prison. Um, and, and so one of the things I think we need to do is, is on the front end, try to keep people from going to prison in the first place. And to me, that starts with youth, um, keeping them uh, you know, really trying to address the issues that we know they have. To me, it also has to do with substance use disorder. Um, let's treat that from a public health perspective, because we don't in the system. It's all punitive once again. And, you know, my sister died of an accidental overdose 30 oh, years ago. So well, so sorry. thanks. I mean, she had was struggling with some mental health issues and um, was on medication and accidentally overdosed. But I think about that a lot. And I think the number of times I had a client where a prosecutor or a judge said, well, your client's been to treatment before. Well, my sister had been to treatment about 13 times, I think. Um, but it, the, this is not how recovery works. 
We know medication-assisted treatment works, but we had to fight, you know, not too long ago to get that, to even get people into drug court because a doctor prescribed medication because the lawyers thought that was substituting one drug for another. And we know it's the gold standard. So we need to start approaching that in a, like I said, harm reduction uh, way. We send so many people to prison on drug cases, um, which, yeah. you know, you, you can use drugs in prison quite easily. Um, yeah. But, you know, we could be focusing on wage theft. We could be right. putting resources on wage theft, um, really Absolutely. investigating violent crime. So is wage theft in your county criminal? Yes, although it's not, um, it can be prosecuted under our statutes. It's, I think there's only been one prosecution um, in the county attorney's office. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Well, we, we're really uh, going to do our best to, to you know, support you in this run because so many lives. I mean, I think, you remember this, Ryan, or perhaps Mary, you know, Larry Krasner's short tenure here in Philadelphia, I believe the number of years that won't have to be carried out in, in our Philadelphia prisons is some crazy number, like 200,000 years that he's, he's reduced. I think, uh, <laughs> think 20,000 years of, oh, okay. 20, of sentences reduced, <laughs> reduced since he was right. elected I mean, in 2017. Just in your imagination, imagine 20,000 years of being caged that, you know, that clearly, you know, didn't have a deleterious effect like on, on the harm caused to people and instead removed that show, so much harm for so many families and people, right? So that's- a lot of it was people who were uh, the, the part of their, they have like an innocence project internal uh, unit releasing like old men, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s even who didn't do the crime. And they're just the previous uh, district attorney had just not let them out. And, and, you know, just just disgusting. Well, there's Uh, also there's also a movement to look at people who may have done the crime, but got ridiculously long sentences and they're they're fine. They're safe in the community. And so why would we keep them locked up? If you're over 60, the chance of you reoffending, you know, is microscopic. Crime is a young men's business. Like to also, there's a lot of things that are criminal that maybe shouldn't be and a lot of things that shouldn't be enforced and a yeah. lot of like, you know. You know, um, I just wanted to mention this, too, because originally you did talk a little bit about police accountability and that um, I was actually fortunate to do a lot of commentary on the Chauvin trial for MSNBC and BBC. And I was actually shocked. I, I spoke to China government TV. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that, that was very shocking. But um, I think a lot about police accountability and I get asked a lot about it and it keeps coming up. And my thought was always right after Chauvin happened when national media kind of descended upon us. And they would say to me, why, why is MPD like this? And I said, well, it isn't just MPD, but they get to be this way because there's never been any accountability with prosecutors, with judges. They have just done whatever they've done and no accountability. And I was also fortunate enough um, in 
I think it was about seven years ago, the, the Minneapolis Police Department was one of the six departments that was participating in the in President Obama's 21st century policing national initiative. And so they were doing procedural justice training and implicit bias training. And I sort of invited myself to go. And one Saturday, it was me and 20 cops. Um, and they knew who I was. Uh, we were sitting at three different tables. And, and the highest ranking cop at my table was a lieutenant. And right before we started, he said in a voice loud enough for me to hear, this is fucking bullshit and a fucking waste of my fucking time. And I oh. thought, I thought, well, this, this ought to be interesting. And he sabotaged <laughs> every small table exercise we were supposed to do. But the, the thing that really caught my eye was in the afternoon when the facilitators who were, were pretty good um, said, what are your goals for the next year? And this guy stood up and he said, I want to maintain the warrior mentality because that's why I became a cop. And it was like light bulbs went off in my head and I thought, okay, so this guy signed up to fight the war on drugs or whatever it is. And, you know, this country asked for that, to be quite honest about it. Um, yeah. We love a war, a war metaphor is we, which is our favorite metaphor for pu public policy. And glamorized it in TV shows like Cops and, you know, mm -hmm. That's right, and, yeah. and, and so we have a whole history of, I mean, I'm not particularly sympathetic to that, his position, but I understand, you know, that's what I signed up for. And I didn't sign up to be a guardian, whatever that is. And so there was no yeah, amount of implicit sorry. bias or procedural justice training that was going to influence him. And so I remember thinking, oh, this is this is a culture thing. This is going to take years to change because the sergeants and lieutenants, the people who are actually responsible for the line cops, um, you know, you can recruit really good cops with good ex life experiences who really want to help. You can train them. And then they're let out there on the streets with these people who are probably saying, forget everything they tell you. This is about being a warrior or something like that. And so I understood back then the complete cultural overhaul that needed to happen. And also that that was never going to be accomplished alone by the police. And so that's one reason I think it's incredibly important for the county attorney to play a role in that. And this is one reason why. Um, we have body cam here. We've had it probably longer than a lot of other police departments, but it is really prosecutors that see more of that body cam, I think, than police leadership. And I have seen a ton of body cam and video, and I've seen policy violations, both big and small. And I'm convinced that those are not shared with police departments. And to me, that's an obligation. Um, it's an opportunity to say, Hey, and here's one example. I um, watched a in squad video, young 19 year old black man was being arrested for obstruction of legal process, being driven to the jail by two white cops. His father had intervened at some point. And so one of the cops said to him, your dad seems like a really nice guy. Why are you such a dumbass?" And then a few minutes later, one of them said, um, you know, you need to read better books on history. You don't understand slavery at all. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, what, what are you doing? 
what are you doing? I mean, I mean, this is certainly a violation of policy, a minor one, but what they said to this young guy is going to stay with him a really long time. I'm sure they think they're helping, right? <laughs> I'm sure they think they're doing what, what they should be doing. Right? Well, if you're goal is to be building relationships in the community, that's not it. And so sharing that video um, and certainly saying, hey, at least there needs to be a conversation here about what's happening. And, you know, police often say their arbitration decisions aren't upheld. And I've read some of them. And sometimes that's because they go from they gave them an award to firing them and there's no progressive discipline. So if they had the video to document that kind of stuff, um, but but also, and, and you know of this with uh, Philadelphia, when you get to the point where you have a cop who has lied under oath or is engaged in abusive behavior, you just don't call them. And we had a case here. Um, there was a cop in a smaller town in Hennepin County who had six cases thrown out by five different judges for violating people's constitutional rights. And two of the judges found that he lied under oath. And yet the county attorney's office kept bringing his cases in the last case, um, the sixth case that that got thrown out. He was asked by the public defender, what are you aware that you've had five cases thrown out? And he said, yes, I am. And I just disagree with the judges. (laughs) And and that judge threw that case out, too. And then after that, there was a meeting with some supervisors from the public defender's office, supervisors from the county attorney's office and Public defenders were like, what are you going to do about this guy? And their answer was actually, we are not his employer. Mm. And I think about that and I think, so if you had a witness from Wells Fargo or, you know, whatever, who did something that, you know, was improper, would you just call them as a witness and just say, we're not his employer? I mean, county attorneys are charged with doing the right thing in each case, which is a very different role than public defender. Public defender represents one client as rigorously and ethically as we can. County attorney is about public safety for everyone in the community. They do not represent the police. They don't represent a person who's harmed. It is about doing the right thing in each individual case. And so how do you justify continuing to bring cases by a cop who continues to violate people's rights and lies under oath and then say, you know, isn't it illegal to lie under oath? Of course. Isn't that uh, perjury? Of course. Of course. Yeah. I I thought I'm not a crime expert like a policeman might be, (laughs) but I feel like you're not supposed to do that. Right. Right. Um, You're not supposed to do that. Um, But as I said, it's, you know, with video, I mean, I represented clients for a long time who would tell me things like that. But if I were to say to a judge, or my client were to testify and say, well, this isn't true, it would be really hard to get a judge to side and believe that the client was telling the truth as opposed to a cop. And now with video, um, it's been remarkable um, that the judges can now see what actually happened. Right. Yeah. Well, marriage, maybe a last question, because we've, we've kept you for a, a while, but um, in your role as, as, you know, if, if you, get to be the county um, DA, in what ways would you expect to have to battle a little bit 
um, the the police or at least the police unions, because that's something that, that um, you know, Larry Krasner's had to deal with quite a bit. It turns out people in power don't like to be uh, called on their misdeeds or how they abuse their power, it's, it turns out. Uh, and as you experience, speaking truth to power in a number of instances has its consequences. So h- how would you um, articulate kind of the fights you might have to anticipate uh, and how would you go about those fights? I think one of them has to do with um, I do have a goal of changing the culture in that office um, for far too long. I think they've been incentivized to win, um, which and that's how they get promotions, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that that's the appropriate um, incentive for a prosecutor. Prosecutors should be about doing the right thing. And that may mean. You know, you look at the body cam after the fact and you find out additional information and you realize that just just isn't a good case and you have to let it go Um, instead of what we sometimes hear is, oh, I know it's a bad case, but it's easier for me just to try it than to actually dismiss it. And when you think about that, you know, think about it from the position of the person who's accused. The prosecutor has said, yes, it's a bad case, but I'm just going to roll the dice with the jury and juries can do anything. And so this person who the prosecutor has said, this is not a good case, could be convicted. It could change their life. Um, And so prosecutors really do need to be incentivized to do the right thing. Um, So that's a change in culture. Um, And I suspect that there are some, they have some young lawyers there. And I think some of the lawyers will be on board. Some of them will quit. Um, if I get elected, and then probably a whole bunch in between who don't have any idea what I'm going to do. And, you know, to me, and this is something that I did when I was chief public defender, I grew up in that office. And so there were lawyers that I really respected and some a little less so, but I tried to give everybody a clean slate and the benefit of a doubt um, and give them an opportunity to understand what my vision was, give them training, um, policies that were really clear, um, and try to empower them to to do the best they could. And obviously, one thing that's not pleasant, but it is critical, is there has to be accountability. Because if I talk about progressive policies and that kind of thing, but they're not being implemented by the line lawyers, then what use am I? Um, and, and they are unionized, which the public defender's office was. And so I know how to work with unions and progressive discipline, which I wouldn't hope not to get to. But um, so there will be that issue. And then with police, um, we are having, I mean, we've, I think, what are we up like between two and 300 Minneapolis police officers have left. Um, One of the things I really want to do and would start doing the moment I got elected, probably, and before I was sworn in, was really trying to work with county commissioners about some programs that we desperately need um, in the county to contract with. And I mentioned um, trauma-based programs, culturally specific programs, uh, uh, the restorative practices. We have all the talent here in the Twin Cities, and we have to start putting in place programs because I can talk about, well, I would like to send somebody to this, that, or the other thing, but if it doesn't exist, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, In in terms of police, uh, it probably will be a battle. Um, You know, one of the things that people have been trying to work on, and I, I was laughing about this with my class today, um, we have this post board 
um, peace officers, standard, that kind of thing. Um, and I was so I'm addressing a group of lawyers, 62 soon to be lawyers um, when they pass the bar. And I was saying, you know, what does passing the bar, you know, what does that mean to people in Minnesota? What does that say? And people were saying, well, um, you have a bar license, you're in good standing, they can trust you. And I said, yeah, generally, that's the idea. Are you aware that the post board really can't take much action against a police officer's license unless there's a conviction or some kind of discipline by the chief? And that's pretty much um, it makes it not a uniform Minnesota response. And so the head of the post board, who's a very progressive police chief, uh, said, you know, if I go to a cosmetologist who screws up my perm, I have more redress than <laughs> some cop beats me up because, you know, there's a license there. And this is true of doctors. And, you know, we have a yeah. uniform system and I assume that's the case in other states, but we don't have that for police. Um, and, and so, you know, some people are trying to put teeth in that. Um, which would give them the power to investigate and revoke licenses um, in certain situations where there isn't a conviction. Um, but I think that there are definite, you know, here's what I'm hopeful. When I was a public defender, I would prepare cases and I would know who the cops were, who would cut corners. And, and I would always think, if I was a prosecutor, why would I want to continue to defend bad cops? Don't you want to have cops who don't cut corners and do a really good job that you can present as witnesses? Um, and yeah, and, and you so you'd think, yeah, I mean, I am hopeful. I have certainly worked with a number of cops in my various um, roles with the public defender's office. And I know there are some that are good and want to do the right thing and other people make them look bad, that kind of thing. Um, and so hoping that. Um, trying to weed out some of the people who just shouldn't be there. Um, and also, by the way, sometimes it's training. I certainly have seen videos where I think it's just a training issue. It's not a purposeful, it's just a, I didn't know I could do this. And if you have that conversation, you know, I, I know what you were trying to do, but this is what the law says you can do. And the cop says, oh, I didn't know that. And that's a different situation. Um, so I, you know, maybe I'm, being way too optimistic, but I am hopeful that um, we can work together. Uh, one of the things I did meet with some police chiefs and I said, what do you want to see from me? And they said, we, we really need communication. We don't get communication about policies, which is fair. You know, <laughs> they had to mm -hmm. understand what the policies are. Um, uh, your presence in the county and listening sure, yeah. to us. And I said, I'll yeah. listen to you. But I will also push back on you if you tell me stuff like it's the county attorney bail policy that's causing violent crime. So I will right. be here. I will listen to you because I you know, you should be here in the room talking about what your ideas are. Like, why? Why do you think you only get about 10 percent or 24 percent of people? What like what's missing there? Maybe you, you could be the restorative justice process. Like on behalf of the people, you could be the person in the room with all the cops who says, I'm representing all the people you've harmed. Let's let's make you a little accountable and responsible for all of your bad actions. <laughs> let's talk it through and let's see if they're willing to do that. 
I had this thought came to my head, actually. For some reason, there was this big controversy. There's a there's a spitting on a cop is a fourth degree assault. (laughs) And um, there was some to do with the county attorney saying to cops, it got all confusing. Um, And it was like, he was only going to charge cases if the spit landed in their face. And I I I, I don't even quite wasn't in on this, but I I remember thinking about this and I thought, you know, being spat upon in the face is pretty disgusting. And I thought, you know, in my fantasy world, I thought, wouldn't it be pretty cool to get a cop who was spat upon in the face to do restorative justice with the person who did it. Um, and I know that's kind of the opposite of what you yeah. said. No, no. I, li- I like where you're, I, I like where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, because, because, and you, it would require a police officer to be vulnerable a little bit and yeah. talk about, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine it feels degrading. It could be scary, you know, with disease, you know, whatever. And, if a sure. cop could explain that to, you know, how it felt to get spit in your face. And then the person talking about why they felt that that was yeah. um, true. Yeah. I actually thought it, it, how, what a, if, if we could actually do that, um, yeah. that person could walk out without a conviction for like a felony conviction. And maybe there could be some understanding because sometimes I think I go to protest, you know, I have friends who protest, but sometimes there are things that they do. And I, I can't even, I'm not black. I can't imagine what it's like um, to be black now in these times, but there are sometimes that people do things. And I think, Oh, you know, not the best thing. I like spitting in an, cop's face but to me is the answer does the answer have to be prosecution um and have a felony um because i think both parties could really if it worked could walk away from that exchange with an understanding of what that experience was like for each one of them um and my hope would be that it the person would never do it again um and maybe the cop would hear the story of why the person did it, um, which would yeah. probably be kind of compelling too. So I, that was the, yeah, I love that. I, I think, I think it would actually also lead the cop, this hypothetical cop to be less violent, uh, his or herself probably. Right. I think if you, and I do believe this, if you, and and I know this comes up with, can we have cops live in the community, which I think the research says doesn't work if you're not, you know, the big key is to actually interact with people in the community and see them as human beings. And this type of restorative practice would be a cop listening to somebody's story about, you know, possibly how they have been hurt by cops or they've seen something or whatever it is. Um, And that cop would walk away with an understanding of who this person is, not just like, you know, one of the people I'm occupying or something like that. And this person would walk away hearing what it felt like when they they spit in this person's face, um, which I think they could understand, well, that really was pretty inappropriate and I shouldn't be doing that. But it would require a level of vulnerability by both. Um, 
but it just seemed to me, and I don't, it did occur to me when they were having this kerfuffle about spit. I, like I said, I don't even know what was going on there, but it occurred to me with something like that, geez, we, we could have both people walk away with a different understanding of each other, um, which ought to be much better than it normally would. And maybe it will reduce both. Uh, the the recidivism rate of citizens and maybe even the recidivism rate of cops doing violence. That that would be great. Um, We should track that. Is that tracked, by the way, the recidivism rate in terms of uh, multiple violations? Because, you know, Chauvin, as you know, was a multiple offender, right? Um, But I think, you know. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's, uh, been the topic of a lot of debate about, um, we. I think we, became aware of many of those other violations simply because of the discovery in the case. And so there's been a lot of controversy about discipline and coaching and um, transparency there. Uh, And and people are asking for more transparency. And when I was talking about um, sharing video with not only MPD, but other uh, police departments, it is giving them an opportunity to document uh, these kind of, I mean, when I say this, when I was talking about that young guy, minor sort of policy violation, but a big deal. And I tend to look at it as, is this a way of perhaps preventing the next Chauvin? Because if you can nip that kind of inappropriate behavior early on, even in a conversation, like if you said, you know, what what were you doing? You know, like, how do you think that young guy walked away from this interaction? Why? What what was your goal? You know, and I, whatever that looked like, you know, maybe you reach that cop at a time when they're getting kind of cynical or they just aren't even thinking about it or they thought it was funny or something like that. And maybe you can stop that um, at an early point. And, and that was part of my goal, too. It, it doesn't necessarily only have to be about discipline, but just the, hey, what's going on with you here? Um, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mary. Yeah. Th- yeah. Th- thanks for uh, so much of your time. Um, we definitely appreciate it. And we will uh, we'll link to your, your uh, website in the show notes. And yeah. uh, is, is there of, anything our, our listeners can do to support you or, or, or help your, your cause in, in running for office? Um, yes, um, certainly if they live here, um, they can vote. Um, they can be delegates uh, wherever they live. They can donate to the campaign. Um, that's right on my website. We have a secure link there. Um, so, yeah, you know, I just want to say one last thing about the pushback. Cause I certainly, I've, I've met Larry Krasner. I've met Chesa. Um, and I tend to think one of the things we really have to do here is build a coalition of people who understand why this is important. And one of the things I really got to practice in the Chauvin commentary was really trying to reduce complex legal topics in a way that people could understand. Because I think the system has been made too complicated and I think it's been made purposely complicated so people can understand it. If people can understand it, they can ask good questions. Like, why are you doing that? That kind of thing. But what my goal is, is to be transparent and to be in the community listening, but also be, to be building coalitions of people who understand that we need to do something different 
because inevitably something happens. It always does. We're not mind readers. And what happens then is there's a huge pushback. You know, you've seen this everywhere else. All of a sudden it's, see, you were soft on crime or doing these crazy things. And we must now go back to the punishment model. And so I think it's critical uh, to be building a coalition here um, of people who are really behind this. So it's it's not just helping me get elected. It's it's making sure that this is a movement that can continue because uh, transforming our system is going to take a long time. Um, and we need to be in it. We need to be here to react to situations. Um, and I, I think that that's critically important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing in the movement and, and all the great work you've done and are, are continuing to do. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for luck. inviting me to be on. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you in the next episode.